Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter eight. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. If you want a good yield, you need good soil. You're not planting those seeds for nothing. You're planting them for a harvest. Otherwise, you wouldn't be planting. You want a harvest, and you want a great harvest. You want a lot of tomatoes. You want a lot of cucumbers. You want a lot of squash, whatever you're planting. Jesus spreads his word everywhere because he's come for all. Some people say, well, why did he throw it on the rocks? Why did he throw it? He, he throws it everywhere. It's for all people. He'll throw it everywhere. He asks us, what's the condition of your heart soil to receive my word? Is it rocky? Is it thorny? Is it full of briars? Does it have moisture? Does it have fertilizer? Is it good soil? What's the condition of your own heart soil? And that can change. Sometimes we have good soil. Other times we don't. How many souls are you going to harvest in your own lifetime? How do you sow his word to others? What's your harvest going to be at the end of your life? How many people are you going to have told Jesus, too. The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. We're the laborers. We're the ones planting the word, spreading the word, evangelizing the word. If we have good heart soil, if we can receive the word, and if it can multiply in us and it can harvest others. Remember when Isaiah said that his word never goes forth void, but it always accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. The pathway is really hard. That ground is really hard. It doesn't get the water. It doesn't get the nutrients. The word goes in one ear and out the other. The seeds just lay there. Birds come and pick them off. I planted grass seed this year, gone. The bird, I saw the birds out there on my window. I thought, ah, there goes the grass seed. The rocky ground, the word was great at first, but it doesn't take root. It doesn't go deep enough. It's not firmly rooted. The thorny soil... There's a lot of thorns in our life, a lot of attachments that we have to the world, to riches, to pleasure. It chokes it out. We're attached to too many other things. But the good soil is when you hear the word and you understand the word, you internalize the word and you hear it and you obey it. Okay? And then he has another mini parable about a lamp on a stand. This is a little shorty, but three of the synoptics have it. No one lights a lamp and covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed. He puts it on a stand so that those who may enter will see the light. For nothing that is hid that shall not be made manifest, nor anything secret that shall not be made known and come to the light. We're having that in our church right now. Things are coming to the light. For nothing that is hid shall not be made manifest, and nothing that is secret that will not be made known and come into the light. Jesus is the light of the world. He exposes sin. And he's the healer. He's the divine physician that can heal sin. And this parable says, take heed then how you hear. How do you hear the word? Because to the Hebrews, hear means obey. Hear means obey. Hear has an action to it. They always think when hear and obey as one word. It's inseparable in the Hebrew language. Hearing means obedience. I'll give you an example. When my kids were little, I'd say, go run, take the trash out. And they'd hear and obey. Out they'd go. Then when they got to be teenagers, they just heard only. I'd say, take out the trash. Did you take out the trash? Tomorrow's trash day. Did anyone take out the trash? Oh, they heard. 
They heard me say it, and there goes the trash can. They missed it. They heard, but they didn't obey. So for, for Jesus wants us to hear the word and obey the word, be obedient to the word, do what the word says. Take heed how you hear. For to him who has will more be given. And from him who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So hear and obey is one action. And you don't light a lamp. This has a parallel to the seed. The lighting of a lamp is parallel to the receiving of the seed. The seed has not been truly received if there's no fruit or in your life. In the same way, the light of Christ has not been truly lit in you if it's not shining out of you. If it's not shining out of your temple, out of your body. It has to shine that they may know the deeds that you do and give glory to who? To God. How brightly do you shine for Jesus? How bright is the light of Christ within you? I shine at Bible study. Everyone at Bible study knows I shine. But I don't shine on Saturday night when I'm going out drinking with my buddies. Oh, I don't talk about it there. Oh, no, 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 no. That's just for Bible study. That's that part of my life. Do you compartmentalize? Oh, I can't tell my kids about this. No, this isn't for that. No, I just do that at Bible study. That's safe there. So sometimes we, we just compartmentalize our life, my work life, my public life, my family life, my church. Oh, I can talk about it at church to those people. I shine at church. Oh, good. <laughs> then his mom, his mother, and his brethren came to him, and they couldn't reach him through the crowd. And he was told, your mom and your brethren are here. They're outside. They're desiring to see you. And he said to them, my mother and my brethren are those who hear the word of God and do it. They hear and obey. They hear and do it. That's what he loves. And he's not dissing his mother here. She gets this. She's saying, oh, our family's really, really, really big because it's all who listen to my son and do what he says. They're all family. And we're going to put on a big banquet feast one day when this is all over. It's going to be called the wedding feast of the lamb and the wine will be endless and the bread will never run out. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. Welcome to the other side. You got to watch that in scripture. Which side of the Galilee is he on? Because one side is Jewish and the other side is Gentile. So we're going to be going across the lake. They set out and they sailed and he fell asleep. And a storm of wind came up down on the lake. The boat was filling with water and they were in great danger. Now, are there any Old Testament stories like that? This is just like Jonah. Jonah's asleep in the boat and a storm comes up and they're filling with water and they're like, who did something against God? And when they throw him over, the storm goes away. And he gets swallowed up into the belly of a whale for how long? Three days. Well, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the new Jonah. Now, Jesus didn't sin, but Jesus is asleep on the boat. And the waves come up in the wind, and they're filling with water. Jonah was swallowed up by death for three days in the belly of a whale. Jesus will be swallowed up by death for three days in the darkness of the tomb. Jonah will be spewed from his tomb of the whale's belly on the third day, and Jesus will be spewed from the tomb on the third day. They wake him up. Jesus, Jesus, they wake him up. Master, master, we're perishing, we're perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? Where's your faith? I am with you. What are you guys going to do when I'm not here anymore? Where's your faith? They were afraid and they marveled. I mean, even the wind and the seas obey him. Who is this guy? 
They said to one another, Who is this? He commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. Where is your faith when storms come up in life? Where is my faith? Sometimes that's when we have the most faith, because we have to rely on him and turn into him and trust him. You better hope it's in place now. That's why we're getting it in place now for when the storms come up. Some of you are in storms right now, and you couldn't get through it without your faith. I know that, and without the body of Christ. Where is your faith? So they get to the other side. Now, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, there's Capernaum where they were, and they're going across to that Gadara region. And that's the country of the Gerasenes. It's opposite Galilee, and it's Gentile territory. It's one of the 10 Decapolis cities that has lakefront, and quite a bit of it. The town Gadara, the country of the Gerasenes, the land of the Gerasenes. And Jesus steps out onto land here on the other side, and he meets a man from the city who had demons, plural, demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothing. This has really robbed him of his dignity. He's running around naked. He's screaming out. He's full of demons. He lived not in a house, but in a cemetery. He lives among the tombs. And for the Jews, the tombs, you don't go, you don't touch death. But he lived in the tombs. And Jesus comes up to him that day. And he saw Jesus. And he cried out and he fell down before him and he said in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? This legion of demons within him knows that he is the son of the most high God. That's the first time we've heard that title in Luke. You are the son of the most high God. I beseech you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man. And they have no choice but to come out because he is God and he can control them. He can has the authority to drive them out of the man's body. And he does. And for many a time, this man had been seized by these demons. He was under guard. He was bound with chains and fetters because these demons tormented him so bad. They had to chain him up. But the man had broke the bonds that, that was driven by the demon and he had gone into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? Jesus is standing face to face with this man. He's driven out the demons and he says, what is your name? He's restoring his dignity. That's a one-on-one. -on -one. He wants to know his name. And the man said, my name is Legion, for many demons had entered him. And the demons begged Jesus. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus to let them enter into these swine. So Jesus gave the demons leave. And the demons came out of the man and they entered into the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep embankment into the lake and were drowned. Into the abyss they go. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled. They ran to the city and they told it in throughout the whole country. And people came out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone. And he was sitting there at the feet of Jesus, calm, full of peace. He was clothed in his right mind, and the people were very afraid. And those who had seen it told how he had been possessed with demons and healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. Go away from us, go away from us. Like Peter, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. They're so in awe, and they're fearful. They were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged him that he might be with him. But he sent him away saying, return back to your home and declare how much God has done for you. He won't let him come to the other side. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. 
Now that's good and that's strategic because both Matthew and Mark have two different recordings of feeding of the 5,000. It's feeding of the 5,000, the first feeding, and then it's feeding of the 4,000 on the other side. Okay, so feeding of the 4,000 took place where? In the region of the Gerasenes in the region of the Decapolis. And those two stories are very symbolic. One, there's 5,000 fed. The other, there's 4,000 fed. Okay, on the Jewish side, it's in Bethsaida. On the Gentile side, it's the area of the Gerasenes. The Jews had five loaves to feed 5,000. There are five books in the Jewish Torah. The other side, seven loaves fed 4,000. 4,000 is north, south, east, west. Seven is the new covenant that's coming for the Gentiles. It will be for the whole world, north, south, east, west. Seven loaves will feed 4,000, four times fullness of a 1,000. Twelve baskets are left over, the 12 tribes of Israel. Seven baskets are left over, the new covenant. Twelve tribes of Israel, seven, new covenant perfection for all people, all of Abraham's children. Those 4,000 people are there because of that garrison demoniac that was healed and went back and told the whole area about Jesus Christ. He's coming again. He's coming again. You got to come see him. You got to come see him. And he changes seven loaves of bread into enough to feed 4,000 Gentiles. So he had done his job. Return back to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he did. He went away proclaiming to the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And 4,000 Gentiles were waiting to be fed that day that Jesus came back to the other side because of his witness. We see this great power between demonic power and the power of Jesus Christ, whose name is above all names. And Paul knew that. He says, we're not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against world rulers, against the present darkness, against wickedness, hosts of wickedness, and heavenly places. This is a cosmic battle. The Greek poet Meledger was born in this Gadara region of the Gerasenes, and he said this city was kind of like the Syrian Athens. It had many temples, many shrines, and it was steeped in pagan religious practices. Josephus records it as a Greek city, but another interesting thing is that the 10th Roman legion lived there. The 10th Roman legion lived in Gadara, and every Roman military unit traveled with pagan priests who prayed and offered sacrifices on behalf of their troops to little G-gods. And so there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on in this area between Jesus, the one true God, and these false gods of the Romans. Their symbol, their mascot, was the boar, the wild pig. Interesting, huh? You can see it on some of the mosaics, the pig. They would offer pigs for sacrifice to the god of Mars, who was the god of war. So this area had a lot of pigs. It had a lot of oak trees, which would drop acorns, which the pigs would eat. The Jews, of course, a pig isn't one of their favorite animals. A pig's not kosher. So it's just interesting that that region is steeped in spiritual warfare. So they go back now across the Sea of Galilee. Last story. And when Jesus returned back to the other side, the crowd welcomed him. They were waiting for them. And there was a man named Jarius. And he was a ruler of the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. We're back on the Jewish side. And he falls at the feet of Jesus and he besought him to come to his home. For he had an only daughter. And she was 12 years of age and she was dying. And he went and the people were pressing in around him really tight. A great crowd pressing in, pressing in. Jesus is back. Jesus is back. The healer's back. And they're pressing in. And a woman who had a blood flow of 12 years of bleeding. She spent all her money on physicians and no one could heal her. Not anyone. 12 years she's been bleeding. 
And the girl is 12 years old. So we have a 12 and a 12. Remember that. Remember 12 in the, in the Bible? What's it stand for? Governance. 12 is governance. 12 hours rule the day in Genesis 1 and 12 hours rule the night. They govern the night. It's a number of governance. There are 12 tribes of Israel to govern Israel. There will be 12 new apostles to govern the new Israel, the church in the new covenant. And so this woman has had a flow of blood for 12 years, spent all her money on physicians. We know St. Luke was a physician and, and we know physicians want healing for people. And this bleeding woman is ritually unclean. She can't be touched for 12 years. She can't be in covenant. She can't talk to anyone. She can't touch it. She can't sit on anyone's sofa. She can't do anything. Because it says in Leviticus 15 that whenever a woman has her menstrual period, she is ceremonially unclean for seven days. Anyone who touches her during that time will be unclean. Anything the woman lies on or sits on during this time will be unclean. And if you touch her bed, you have to wash your clothes and bathe yourself because you will be unclean. And, and it's just very, very much unclean, a woman that's bleeding. If a man has sexual intercourse with her and her blood touches him, then her menstrual impurity will be transmitted to him and he will remain unclean for seven days. And any bed on which he lies is going to be unclean. What's this about? What's all this about? It's a, the Jews love life. God is a God of life. This is a discouragement from the unitive marital embrace while the woman is menstruating. Why? A couple comes together in that unitive marital embrace, open to new life. God is a God of life, abundant life. He's come that we might have life. He doesn't want the, he, the woman's not fertile at the time of her period. If a woman has a flow of blood for many days that is unrelated to her menstrual cycle, like this woman, or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she's ceremonially unclean. As during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean as long as the discharge continues. Any bed she lies on is unclean. Anything she touches is ceremonially Anything she gets, unclean, unclean, unclean. And when the woman's bleeding stops, she has to count off seven days. Then she can be made clean. If she takes uh, an offering, two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the tabernacle and he offers a sin offering for her and a burn offering for her, then through this process, the priest can declare that she is clean. Wow. Well, this lady has been bleeding for 12 years. Unclean, 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 just like the leper. She's been unclean for 12 years. She can't touch anyone. She can't come into contact with them. She can't sit on the couch. She can't do anything. She can't talk to people. She's unclean for 12 years. She's bleeding all the time. No life. So she's been bleeding 12 years. And she knew that no one could heal her. No one. And she comes up behind Jesus that day. He's walking through her town. She comes up behind him, and she wants to just touch just the tip, tip of his garment. And immediately, right when she touched it, the flow of her blood ceased. Now, this is one of the oldest paintings in the catacombs in Rome, this story. The hemorrhaging woman. She comes up behind him. If I could only touch the fringe of his garment, if I could just... And immediately, immediately, the blood stops. Immediately. Twelve years of bleeding and poof, just touching the thread of his garment. This reminds me of something we call a third-class relic in the church. Fabric that's touched a saint. It's in Acts. It's in the Bible. In Acts 19, God did extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that the people brought handkerchiefs and aprons and they carried him away from his body to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them just by touching Paul's fabric. That's a third-class relic. If she could just touch the tip of his garment, she could be healed. And Jesus said, 
Who was it that touched me? Who was it that touched me? And all of them denied it. And Peter said, Master, the multitudes are surrounding and pressing in upon you. But Jesus said, Someone has touched me, for I perceive that power has gone forth from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. He must have looked right through her. She saw that she was not hidden because he can read hearts. He can lay hearts bare, right? And this parable just said nothing that is hid will not be made manifest. Nothing that's secret will not be made known when it comes into the light of Christ. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came forth trembling and she fell down before him and she declared in the presence of all the people that she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. With that immediate healing, Jesus does not get defiled by touching a bleeding woman. Because it's immediate. He's not guilty of touching a bleeding woman and being made unclean. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And on the eighth day, she would have had to bring the turtle dove and the pigeons, and she would have had to go tell the priest at the temple, and she would have had to wait seven days, and she would have been declared clean. She had to go to the priest to purify her, to be set free of this bleeding and this impurity, this uncleanness. I'll bet you after that seven days, she went forth leaping like calves from the stall. And where do I get that from Malachi? Because she knew the prophecy. When Messiah comes, for you who fear his name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. The wings of his garment, the wings of his prayer telleth. The fringe on the very bottom that the men wore. If she could just touch the teensy of his garment, she could be healed. And then the prophecy goes on to say, you shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall. And she went off in full covenant, back into full covenant, no longer bleeding. She's been made clean. She's been set free. The bleeding has stopped. Now, in the meantime, Jesus is still speaking, and a man from the ruler's house comes and says, Ah, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. That's a protection for Jesus. She's dead. Jesus, the rabbi, cannot touch death. If he touches death, he'll be made unclean. Forget it. She's dead. It's done. Jews cannot touch death. Judaism teaches that the world is a cosmic battle, and in the temple, representing perfection of the true presence of God, it's totally devoted to life. And so no form of death can ever enter the temple. And human beings who come in contact with the dead cannot enter the temple until after they've been purified. They must be born again. They must be washed clean in the midst of a bath. And they must be recreated by God. Judaism also is the religion of human partnership with God to achieve repair of the world. God is completely on the side of life. Jews must be completely on the side of life. Ideally, every act should advance and nurture life and fight to reduce death. But priests are people totally dedicated to God. They worked in the temple, a place totally dedicated to God and to life, and so they could not touch the dead. Priests could not touch the dead. We'll see this in the Good Samaritan story when the priest rides right by. It's not that he doesn't care. Priests cannot touch the dead in Jewish law. God says, see, I've set before you this day life and good and death and evil. Choose life and live. He's a God of life. The whole Bible is a gospel of life. Touching death would make Jesus ritually unclean. So while Jesus is still speaking, they say, forget it. But Jesus heard this. And he answered, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he permitted no one to enter with him except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the child. And they were all weeping and bewailing. And he said, do not weep. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. She's dead. There is no spirit of life in her. She is dead. They're laughing at Jesus. She's dead. 
But taking her by the hand, her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that she should be given something to eat. That's the physician, Luke, giving us that detail, because if she eats, it means she's really alive. She swallowed, she's eating. And her parents were amazed, and he charged them not to tell anyone what just happened. I know your daughter was just raised from the dead, but let's just not tell anyone about that, okay? All those people that are waiting outside, just so we won't say a thing. Because of the messianic secret that God's plan would not be thwarted. Tell no one that your daughter has just been raised from the dead. Now, I just want to wrap this up with something kind of cool. The 12 and the 12. We've got the old covenant and the new covenant. And daughter Zion, Israel. Don't think of these women now. Think of Israel, the nation Israel. She's bleeding out at the time Jesus comes. She's no longer fertile. She's not bearing good fruit. The temple's corrupt. The Pharisees are corrupt. The little girl is 12 years old. What happens, ladies, when you're 12 years old? You're just coming into your fertility. Something new is happening in your body. So one lady's bleeding out and no longer fertile. One lady's just coming into her fertility. She's 12 years old. Something's changing. Something's changing. This covenant is changing. The old covenant is changing into the new covenant spiritually. She has an immediate, the old covenant, an immediate healing of what's unclean through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The little girl, an immediate resurrection into new life. The old covenant is being healed from its uncleanliness through Christ, through the Messiah, and brought into the new covenant. It's for all people. It's for the Jews and the Gentiles if they want it, if they can see it with eyes that can see and ears that can hear The governance is changing. It's not going to be the 12 tribes of Israel anymore. It's going to be the 12 apostles. He's building an apostolic church of 12 apostles. It's a new Israel led by the 12. He says to them in Matthew 19, 28, I tell you at the renewal of all things, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. A new governance is happening. A new covenant is coming in to play. A old bride of God who's coming to an end. He's going to die on the cross, and that'll be the end. A new bride of God, a new bride of Christ. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to incorporate both Israel and the church. They're going a new Israel. They're going to all be combined together in a new bride. It's for all people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just praise and thank you for Luke and his deep spiritual sense. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for his love of women today and the lessons he shows us as a physician the lessons through the body of women. And John Paul followed up with the theology of the body, how much our body has to teach us about life and your love for us, Lord. Thank you for your parables. Thank you that the veil has been lifted so we can see and we can hear. And now, Lord God, as we go out, just help us to obey. Help us to not just hear your word, but help it fall on fertile heart soil that we may obey that they may see the good that we do and give glory to God. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 8, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.